Hello, this is、uh, Dr. Pengshen Chen, the editor in chief of Harvardism. The first article in February 2023 issue is a research letter titled "Increase in United States Atrial Fibrillation-Related Mortality During the COVID-19 Pandemic." The authors studied the data from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. They found that during the first year of COVID-19 pandemic, excess mortality related to atrial fibrillation was observed in the United States. This phenomenon mainly affected white men older than 65 years. The present findings reinforce the need for additional screening and public health care interventions to identify atrial fibrillation in the general population. Remembering the prognostic impact of this arrhythmia in patients with COVID-19. The next article is long-term outcomes in non-progressors to cardiac resynchronization therapy. Among patients with heart failure undergoing cardiac resynchronization therapy or CRT, the patients with a minimal change in LV ejection fraction have recently been defined as non-progressors. Rather than non-responders, little is known in regarding long-term outcomes of non-progressors. A total of 1,058 patients were included in the study, and、uh, had a mean follow-up of 8.7 years. The authors found that non-progressors to CRT have superior median-term outcomes, but、uh, similar long-term outcomes to progressors. And inferior of inferior outcomes to responders and super responders. Up next is association of left ventricular remodeling with cardiac resynchronization therapy outcomes. The purpose of this study was to evaluate long-term CRT outcomes by extent of LV remodeling. The data came from a prospective double-blind randomized trial of CRT. The analysis included 353 subjects randomized to CRT on arm. They found that preventing further increases in LV and systolic volume with CRT was associated with reduced mortality, whereas functional measure improvement was associated with LV remodeling magnitude. These results support the consideration of functional and mortality endpoints. To assess CRT efficacy, and provide further evidence that dichotomous responder and non-responder classification should be modified. That article is followed by one titled "Transvenous Lead Extraction in Patients with Systemic Cardiac Device-Related Infection: Procedural Outcome and Risk Prediction: A Gallery Subgroup Analysis." A total of 722 patients, or 28.6%, in a gallery database, had systemic infection as extracting extraction indication. These patients were older and had more comorbidities than patients with local infections or non-infectious extraction indications. There was an increase in rate of all-cause in-hospital as well as procedure-related mortality. Despite having comparable procedural success rates, given these data, it seems paramount to develop preventive strategies to detect and treat cardiac device-related systemic infection 
in its earliest stages. Coming up is anti-tachycardia pacing success in implantable cardioverter defibrillators by patient, device, and programming characteristics. The authors performed a retrospective analysis of the pain-free SmartShock technology study. Of the 2,770 enrolled patients, 1,699 or 61% received an ICD and 1,071 or 39% a cardiac resynchronization therapy defibrillator. ATP had greater than 80% rate of success for terminating VTs overall. The authors conclude that delivering more ATP sequences resulted in a higher overall success of terminating VTs, while programming more ATP was associated with decreased shock burden and no evidence of increased syncope or acceleration. The next one is pocket histology at cardiac implantable electronic device replacement. What's new? This is a single-center study between November 2019 and May 2020. Pocket tissue specimens from the anterior and the posterior pockets were obtained intraoperatively. 30 patients, 6 women and 20% were enrolled. Subcapsular fibrosis was mild and multifocal in the anterior wall and moderate and focal in the posterior wall. Neovascularization was focal in most cases, and the vessel remodeling mainly involved the tunica media. Chronic inflammation was usually mild and non-granulomatous, and in a quarter of cases, subacute exudative fibrous inflammation was uh, detected in the posterior pocket wall. The authors concluded that the CIED pocket is a histopathologically dynamic environment, given the coexistence of both a subacute foreign body response and a fibrous tissue growth, implying continuous remodeling due to an injury repair mechanism. Strategies to interact with foreign body response might minimize inflammatory pocket activity. Next up is biventricular endocardial pacing and left-bound branch area pacing for cardiac resynchronization. Mechanistic insights from electrocardiographic imaging, acute hemodynamic response, and magnetic resonance imaging. The purpose of this study was to compare the acute electrical and hemodynamic effects of BIV-EPI, BIV-INDO, and LBB-AP delivered from the LV endocardium and to assess how myocardial scar affects response. 10 patients with heart failure and uh, indications for CRT underwent a temporary pacing study with electrocardiographic imaging, or ECGI and hemodynamic assessment. The results show that the superior electrical resynchronization and a higher proportion of acute hemodynamic responders during BIV-INDO and LBB-AP compared to BIV-EPI. Electrical resynchronization was similar between BIV-INDO and LBB-AP. However, septal scar seemed to attenuate, attenuate the response to LBB-AP. 
Coming up is distance between the lead implanted site and tricuspid valve annulus in patients with left bundle branch pacing. Effects on post-operative tricuspid regurgitation deterioration. A total of 89 patients were enrolled and assigned to two subgroups based on degree of tricuspid regurgitation, or TR, before LBB pacing implantation. At 19 months of follow-up, 29 patients, or 32.6%, had the TR deterioration, and 23 of them were in the grade 0 or 1 subgroup. The authors found that TR was a common complication of LBB pacing, pacemaker implantation. In patients with non or trivial or mild TR, uh, lead to tricursive annulus distance of less than or equal to 16.1 mm was an independent predictor of TR deterioration after LBBP implantation. Up next is the incremental value of the signal average ECG for diagnosing arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. Probands with ARVC and family members from the Canadian Arrhythmogenic Right Ventricular Cardiomyopathy Registry underwent phenotype review. A total of 196 patients with ARVC and 205 controls were included. Signal average ECG abnormalities were seen in 83 of 205 controls, or 40%, 33 of 68 patients with ARVC and mild disease, or 51%, and 31 of 42 with severe disease, or 74%. The signal average ECG associated strongly with imaging abnormalities, but not with other aspects of phenotype. The authors conclude that signal average ECG appears to be a surrogate marker for structural abnormalities seen on imaging in those with ARVC. Great caution is required in interpreting signal average ECG findings in those without other corroborating evidence of ARVC phenotype. The next one is prognostic significance of remotely monitored nocturnal heart rate in heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction. The purpose of this study was to investigate the clinical significance of nocturnal heart rate and 24-hour mean heart rate obtained by continuous remote monitoring of implantable devices. The study cohort included 1,330 patients. Compared with patients in the lowest nocturnal heart rate quartile group, Patients in the highest quartile group had an increased risk of non-arrhythmic death and VTVF and were characterized by the lowest level of physical activity. The authors conclude that in remotely monitored patients with implantable cardioverter defibrillator or CRTD on beta blocker therapy for heart failure, elevated heart rates, that is nocturnal heart rate greater than 65 beats per minute and 24-hour heart rate greater than 75 beats a minute, were associated with increased mortality and VTVF risk. Nocturnal heart rate showed a stronger association than 24-hour heart rate with worse prognosis and lowest physical activity. Up next is the ventricular arrhythmias following fibroma resection are patients still at risk. The cohort included 56 patients with ventricular fibromas who underwent surgical resection the median age of surgery of two years. 
Indications for surgery included cardiac arrest in 11 or 24%, sustained VT in 16 or 35%, premature ventricular contractions and non-sustained VT in 10 or 22%, and hemodynamic abnormalities in 9 or 20%. At the time of last follow-up for a median 1.5 years, 45 or 98% were free of clinical VTVF and no patients with an ICD has received an appropriate shock. The authors conclude that surgical resection of ventricular fibromas significantly reduces the risk of life-threatening arrhythmias in children. However, a small number of patients remain vulnerable. The next article is rapid ventricular tachycardia in patients with tetralogy fallot and implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Insights from the DA1T4F nationwide registry. Data were analyzed from a nationwide registry including all patients with tetralogy followed and implantable cardioverter defibrillators since year 2000. Of 144 patients, 61 or 42% had at least one VTVF episode, including 28 patients with rapid VTVF or 46% during median follow-up of 6.3 years. Compared with patients in the non-rapid VT group, those in the rapid VTVF group were significantly younger at ICD implantation, had more frequently a history of cardiac arrest, less frequently a history of atrial arrhythmia, and higher right ventricular ejection fraction. The authors conclude that patients with TOF and rapid VTVF had distinct clinical characteristics. The relatively low variation of VT cycle length over time suggests room for castor ablation without a backup ICD in selected patients with well-tolerated VT. Coming up is the derivative of tissue activation as a marker of arrhythmogenic myocardium. The authors hypothesize that tissue derivatives of the voltage with respect to time, or DVDT, the slope of unipolar ventricular electrogram registered by local ventricular activation uh, represents a unique parameter for identifying potential arrhythmogenic tissue in the ischemic scar border zone. They found that the minimum DVDT in MI animals was less than that in, in the control animals. In, uh, in MI animals, low minimum DVDT regions harbor arrhythmogenic substrates that were characterized by one, high responsiveness to sympathetic stimulation, two, presence of late potentials, and three, lower unipolar and bipolar voltage amplitudes. The authors conclude that DVDT minimum is a unique parameter for identifying arrhythmogenic myocardium and may add a useful metric to conventional mapping strategies. The next three articles are contemporary reviews. The first one is titled Lights and Shadows of Subcutaneous Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator in Brugada Syndrome. The authors discuss the correct use of subcutaneous ICD in Brugada Syndrome. The second one is Pacing-Induced Cardiomyopathy, a systematic review and meta-analysis of definition, prevalence, risk factors, and management. The authors found that key risk factors included baseline left ventricular ejection fraction, native QRS duration, RV pacing percentage, and paced QRS duration. 
A third review is titled Reduction in Atrial and Pulmonary Vein Stretch as a Therapeutic Target for Prevention of Atrial Fibrillation. This review focuses on atrial stretch and its clinical associations in patients with AF and its downstream effects on electrophysiology. The authors discuss the possible application of targeted atrial stretch reduction in AF prevention. They conclude that reducing local atrial stretch should be considered an essential element in rhythm control. These review articles are followed by a creative concept paper titled Subthreshold Delayed After Depolarizations Provide an Important Arrhythmogenic Substrate in Border Zone of Infarcted Hearts. There are four research letters in this uh, uh, issue of the journal. The first one is Temporary Active Fixation Lead Pacemaker in Transcaster Aortic Valve Replacement Patients with Right Bundle Branch Block. The authors show that temporary pacing using a permanent active fixation pacing lead connected to an external generator in TAVR patients is feasible and safe. A second research letter is titled A Novel, Simple, and Safe Approach to Frozen Pacemaker Leads. This new approach includes placing the rubber glove between the set screw and the wrench. It helped both authors remove two frozen pacemaker leads at the time of post-generator replacement. A third letter is Contemporary Trends in Utilization and Outcomes of Percutaneous Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion in the United States from 2016 to 2019. The authors report that volume of percutaneous left atrial appendage occlusion increased fivefold from 2016 to 2019, accompanied by a decrease in most complications and length of hospital stay, despite a more comorbid patient population. A final research letter is immune cell sub, uh, subpopulation as risk factors for atrial fibrillation, the cardiovascular health study, and the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. In this evaluation of circulating immune cell subsets in two large population-based prospective cohort studies, none was associated with new-onset atrial fibrillation. These new findings do not exclude the role of innate or adaptive immune activation in the pathogenesis of atrial fibrillation. I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Pen Xian Chen.